This podcast was recorded on Saturday, September 29th at 2.07 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Obviously, everyone is conscious that Canada lost its last race for the Security Council, and that was the source of quite a lot of diplomatic drama in, uh, in New York when it happened. Now, you can lose one race, but if Canada loses two Security Council races in succession, I think that will, that will be bad for Ottawa's relations with the UN going forward. That's Richard Gowan, a senior fellow at the UN University's independent think tank, the Centre for Policy Research. I genuinely do not know who is going to win this race. Canada is in a tough fight for a UN Security Council seat. The Liberals announced two years ago they hoped to be on the council in 2021-2022. But the slate was already full with Ireland and Norway in the two available seats. Norwegians and the Irish may well have locked up quite a few votes. So the Liberals have been campaigning. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in New York City last week making Canada's case. I said you have our support. So, um, but I told him you need to be a little more specific than I am. His agenda was stacked with photo ops, with funding announcements. This growing support for education is great news for millions of girls public events. Canadians are good at convening groups of people. It's one of the things we do. And high-level meetings. Armed conflict, emerging threats, a changing climate, all have tested the strength of our commitment and the bounds of our compassion. Activities designed to showcase Canada's engagement with the multinational organization and play up the Prime Minister. Prime Minister Trudeau is a huge asset. While Trudeau was glad-handing and posing for selfies, Gowan warns there is a risk of overkill with Canada's star player. He can actually perhaps be in New York too often. He is a great performer. Other leaders do like him. But there is sometimes a sense that he risks a bit of a cult of personality. And actually diplomats and leaders can resent that. 18 months away from the actual vote, is Canada doing enough to win this? I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. In this episode, we look back at Canada's previous stints on the UN Security Council with the players who were there. What impact did Canada have, and what was the cost of getting there? Then, of course, we'll chat about this bid. With Canada scheduled to give its address to the UN General Assembly on Monday, UN Ambassador Marc-André Blanchard will join us with a preview. Number of votes obtained, Portugal 113, 113, Canada 78, 78. I now give the floor to the representative of Canada. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, the Canadian delegation wishes to withdraw its candidacy and to congratulate uh, Portugal and Germany for their election to the Security Council. Thank you very much. 
That's what losing sounded like back in 2010. Under Stephen Harper's Conservative government, Canada had failed to capture one of the 10 non-permanent seats on the UN's most important and prestigious body. Trudeau's Liberals now want a seat back at the table, and they're not the only ones who think it's a valuable idea. We reached some of the major players from that time. The Security Council is where all the important decisions of the UN are taken. It's the only body of the UN uh, which uh, can uh, issue binding decisions uh, on, uh, on member states. Uh, you know, this is where, this is where the action <laughs> takes place. Hello, I'm uh, Yves Fortier. I was Canada's ambassador to the UN in 1989 and 1990. Among all the parts of the United Nations, the Security Council is the most significant, the most powerful, and when it's operating, the most effective. It has the most authority under the Charter. It can send troops into war. It can make binding international resolutions. It can make international law in effect. So it's a place we want to be because of this pr prestige, because of the authority. And because it puts Canada at the center of things when there are crises. My name is Alan Rock, and I was ambassador to the United Nations for Canada from the end of 2003 until mid-2006. There's other reasons why you'd want to be on the council. It's better to be a policy maker than a policy taker. I've been in the Security Council. I'm the last Canadian to sit on the Security Council, and I hope that's just a statement of fact and not a prediction. <laughs> so I'm Paul Heinbecker former uh, permanent representative of Canada, ambassador uh, to the UN and to Germany and a few other jobs, former foreign policy advisor to Brian Mulroney, prime minister, former, and I guess I could say I've advised successive prime ministers on foreign policy. How many heads of government, heads of state are in New York? 124. The idea that floats around in Canada, so, somehow the UN doesn't matter anymore. How do you get 124 heads of government to go? You couldn't get 124 heads of government to do anything. But they come because they know it's in their interest. Part of it is because they get to stand on the dais and make a nice speech. Nobody is so indiscreet as to show the empty seats in front of them. And it's also a, it's a, it's a diplomatic meat market. The big, bigger countries, the Americans in particular, Chinese and the Russians, the French and the, and the British, uh, they're bigger than we are in population. They're richer than we are in total GDP. Not the Russians, but the others are. Uh, but they, they, they don't have a, a monopoly on ideas. If you have ideas, when, when you get into the back room of the, of the UN Security Council, when the cameras are off and the doors are closed and you're in this little room that's not a lot bigger than this room, it comes to a point in many discussions where, where ideas matter. And if you have the ideas, and Canada is ideas, we used to be, you know, ideas are us, was our, our kind of motto, somebody, implementation, somebody else's problem. <laughs> we had, we were not short of ideas. Yves Fortzi, Alan Rock, and Paul Heinbecker all argue that Canada has an interest in making the world work, and that when Canada sat on the UN Security Council in the past, it helped make the world a better place. Since 1948, Canada has been on the Security Council six times. After its fifth round on the Council in 1989-1990, the world witnessed horrendous crimes. Ethnic conflict in the Balkans highlighted the limitations of what UN peacekeepers could actually do to prevent the massacre of civilians. As did the genocide in Rwanda when the international community showed it was 
unwilling or unable to act. It was a horrible situation, and I remember I was in cabinet at the time, but I wasn't in foreign affairs, um, that we were getting the telegrams from Romeo Dallaire from Rwanda. He was basically saying, this is insane. You know, we could stop this thing, but, but the rule at the U.N. at that time was that the peacekeepers cannot engage in any uh, use of force to protect people. My name is Lloyd Axworthy. I was the foreign minister in uh, Mr. Kretchen's government and uh, was uh, heavily involved in the U.N. Security Council campaign, which was really seen as part of a larger effort uh, at, at the time for Canada to develop a very clear strategy based on human security principles, which is protection of individuals, protection of people. And we were able to use our uh, campaign and the seat on the Security Council to make some, I, I believe, pretty important steps towards that uh, objective of helping to protect civilians. Axworthy says the Liberals decided they would help develop a body of law, customs and behaviours that would hold people accountable if they committed these types of crimes. It wasn't an entirely new idea. The UN Secretary General at the time, Kofi Annan, was making the case that the sovereignty of nations needed to be balanced against horrific international crimes like genocide. The world has become so interdependent that what happens in one region affects us all. I mean, we cannot consider a situation like Bosnia or Zaire or Rwanda, for that matter, internal situations that destabilizes a whole region and creates uh, loss of refugees and displacement. The Canadian government played an instrumental role in the late 1990s developing the Anti-Personal Landmine Convention as well as helping shape the International Criminal Court and the Protocol for Child Soldiers. When we decided about uh, seeking the seat of the Security Council, we said, well, why not uh, actually have a very uh, articulated campaign around uh, protection of people? So it wasn't that we, we were there because uh, we were nice guys or that uh, we were uh, uh, lots of fun at parties. It was that we had a very specific agenda that if you elect us to the Security Council, here's what we're going to do. People don't know that UN peacekeeping missions didn't have mandates to protect civilians until we, in that Security Council cycle, promoted that idea. That's Paul Heinbecker again, Canada's UN ambassador from 2000 to 2003, who worked closely with Axworthy. There are pictures in Bosnia of Serb soldiers kicking the hell out of civilians on the ground. And with a UN soldier standing there because he hasn't got a mandate to do anything about it. He's not allowed to do anything about it. We thought that this, uh, you know, this, this uh, impartiality uh, was was destroying the reputation and properly destroying the reputation of the UN because how can you how can you possibly stand there and let this kind of stuff happen if you can stop it? We pushed responsibility to protect. Uh, we we succeeded in getting that norm established and accepted in the UN in sort of warp speed for diplomacy five years beginning to end. It was an important idea. Uh, it's still more potential than performing, in a sense. Uh, Syria is, puts a pretty rather big dent in the, in the theory that we have a responsibility to protect people because when that came up, you know, the, the major countries who had the, the big battalions basically, you know, headed for the 
headed for the woods. Uh, and the United States wouldn't intervene. The Russians were on the other side intervening. Uh, the Europeans were too concerned about the uh, finances of Greece to get involved in Syria. It's it's uh, one of history's lovely ironies that then the Syrians decided that if the Europeans weren't going to come and help them, that they were going to go to Europe. <laughs> and, they, and the refugees uh, practically brought down the European Union. There's no real playbook on how to campaign successfully for a UN Security Council seat. I think you, you begin, you know, in New York. Uh, it starts at uh, in the in the PMO. Folks disagree on having an agenda. We have a long history of uh, being uh, uh, participants, active participants in the work of the UN. So you don't need a set agenda. But the fact that we had a clear agenda that people said, yeah, that's what they stand for. They're not going there just simply to. Uh, occupy a seat for two years. Some years have been easier than others. When I was called Mr. Ambassador in those days, I had to turn around to see who they were talking to. That's Yves Forti again, Canada's UN ambassador from 1988 to 1991. The tradition, after the official presentation of the credentials, you go into the Secretary General's uh, room for a, a, a verre de champagne, for a glass of champagne. Uh, and I did that. This was one-on-one. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, Perez Acria, who became a very, a very good friend of mine, uh, one of the things he said was, you know, Mr. Ambassador, uh, when I uh, think of uh, the model country at the UN, he says, I immediately think of Canada. Uh, well, when I, <laughs> you know, when I walk back to my mission, I, I thought to myself, well, he probably says that to, to every new ambassador. But I was soon to discover uh, that, no, this was true. My visits with the, uh, with the ambassadors with the, from other countries, uh, it was almost unanimous. The uh, affection, <laughs> that's, uh, my word is not an ex- exaggerated, the affection that they, they had for, for everyone had for Canada. Forti and the others say the campaign is run on several fronts. On the ground in New York with UN ambassadors... The personal relationship between our ambassador and other ambassadors has a significant impact on the number of votes we get and whether people will actually turn up and cast their ballot. The race also involves Canada's missions abroad and sometimes more than just the diplomatic staff. We mobilized uh, all our missions and ambassadors, but also we got ex-diplomats, senators, members of parliament, uh, Anybody who knew somebody out there in the big world, you know, I remember getting one of our senators, Royce Frith, who happened to know some people in the South Pacific Islands, you know, Nauru and places like that. And off he went, and we came back with six votes from, you know, the Pacific Islands. That's Lloyd Axworthy, Canada's foreign affairs minister at the time. We had a lot of support in the Caribbean, in small, mainly from small and medium-sized countries. I think the Brits supported us. But the other big powers uh, thought we were just being a little too pushy. Myself and the Prime Minister became perpetual nags. I mean, every international meeting you go to, you talk about uh, your ambitions or your goals. Uh, the Prime Minister was very supportive. Uh, 
and you know set the word out that uh, resources had to be released, and that was not easy because uh, Mr. Martin was cutting budgets pretty actively along the way. The Prime Minister, it appears, can make all the difference. From Ottawa, Mr. Mulroney, who uh, was a firm believer uh, in multilateralism, a firm believer in the role of the United Nations, uh, was, uh, and, and as you probably know, uh, he, uh, he's, uh, he loves to use the phone. I've often said I thought that the, the telephone was invented for Brian Mulroney. <laughs> and uh, so he conducted the campaign uh, for a seat on for Canada's seat on the Security Council from from Ottawa, phoning his friends, the prime ministers, uh, the presidents of uh, of other countries, and he had very good relationship with uh, many many of them. This was number one on 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 his uh, <clears throat> on his list of things to say, uh, topics to discuss. When the vote was held. Uh, Canada was uh, was elected with the largest majority that any non-permanent member ever received for uh, in an election to uh, the Security Council. That year, in 1988, Canada competed against Finland and Greece. Greece lost. It lost again ten years later when Canada faced off against the Netherlands in Greece. The Greeks uh, were part of our opposition invited all the permanent representatives uh, on a cultural tour. This was to you know, acquaint them uh, uh, with the Greek islands and the wonders of, uh, of Greek history and had nothing to do, nothing to do with the, the election to the Security Council. Uh, I think we gave maple syrup. Records suggest the Canadian government spent approximately $10 million on the campaign for the 1998 vote and $1 million on the 2010 vote. So far, the Trudeau Liberals say they've only spent half a million dollars on their bid. The Canadian public is not very interested in spending a lot of money to be elected. That's not the case uh, in some other, or at least it may be the case in every country, but the, the governments of some of those countries are quite willing to spend their people's money. Gifts aside, what really goes on in New York and in capitals around the world when it comes to UN Security Council seats is a little bit of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, there's a lot of horse trading that goes on in the UN. That's Paul Heinbecker, the UN ambassador from 2000 to 2003. It means saying to people, we'll vote for you on something if you'll vote for us on something. Uh, and it, it's... Uh, it's part of the way that you bank uh, commitments to vote. Because there's 193 countries. You need, if I remember correctly, 131 or 132 votes to be elected. Uh, so you, you, you start as early as possible banking votes. And there's a, there's a ledger. And, and undoubtedly they have that sort of thing in New York now and in Ottawa, although they'll never give it to anybody. And it indicates who is voting, who they think is actually voting for them, who may not be committed yet, how to, uh, who you should be going after. Of the countries who are you know, going to be voting, about 30% uh, don't get instructions. Even the ones who get instructions don't necessarily follow the instructions because nobody knows. 
One thing that's important to remember about this process is that the vote itself is secret. That's Alan Rock, the former Liberal cabinet minister and the UN ambassador from 2003 to 2006. And as Stephen Harper and John McNee discovered, people can tell you they're going to support you, but until you actually see the light go up on the board, you don't know that they have. And um, I've, I've known member states that walk into that chamber for the vote feeling that they have a solid majority and come out with far less than they need to get elected. And they're quite shocked. Like, who told me a lie? So there's something that's called the RLB factor, rotten lying bastard factor. This is an Australian term. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it was coined uh, after Australia lost about two years earlier. That was about 1998, uh, when they thought they were going to win. And it was the, it, because the perm rep himself, the permanent representative, was, was quite unpopular at the UN. A lot of countries didn't honor the commitments their capitals made, a lot of ambassadors, and so they voted for somebody else. So it's a bit like, I mean, it's an election. Ottawa's affection for the UN changed in some ways after the Conservatives came into power in 2006. Mr. Harper did not have the same, uh, what I call it, affection for multilateralism uh, as uh, Mr. Mulroney, Mr. Chrétien, uh, Paul Martin certainly uh, had. By the time the vote came in 2010, the Government of Canada had signaled in many, many ways, directly and indirectly, a contempt for multilateralism, a disinterest in the United Nations, and a suspicion and distrust of the elites who were at the big tables in the world running things. And so uh, taken together with a reduction in international development assistance, closing of some embassies and some other surly, unpleasant things that the government did in the run-up to that vote, I think we earned the attitude from the rest of the world. Well, if that's the way you feel, just stay at home and um, forget about being on the Security Council. So I, I really think it was a global judgment on the foreign policy of Stephen Harper's government and one that was richly deserved. Mr. Harper was not popular in the UN and he was considered not to be all that interested in it and only interested in not losing that be, be not so much interested in what he would do on the council, but an inter, interested in not suffering the political fallout of a, of a loss. I mean, the fundamental problem last time was that we were pursuing policies that other people didn't like. When Canada lost the bid in 2010, a reporter asked then Foreign Affairs Minister Lawrence Cannon about conservative policies. If shifting aid money away from Africa and pulling funding out from the United Nations Relief Work Agency in Palestine had affected the result. It said that you lost a lot of votes in, 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 the, in, the, in the Middle East because of that. Cannon responded, not really. Uh, we did have uh, uh, strong commitments and strong support, and we're very thankful to those countries that uh, indeed uh, did uh, give us a written su support and committed to Canada. So, you know, we can speculate until tomorrow, but I can't... Uh, I can't give you any definite uh, response as to what the uh, real issue was, but I can say that Michael Ignatieff's statements hurt us. Three weeks earlier, Ignatieff, then the Liberal leader, had told reporters he wasn't sure Canada deserved to be on the UN Security Council. 
Uh, has Canada really earned its place at the Security Council? This is a government that for four years has basically ignored the United Nations and now is suddenly showing up saying, hey, put us on the Council. I think you have to earn this. And there's a serious question as to whether the Conservative government has earned it. One of the issues that we will have to be conscious of is the positions on, on, uh, on the Middle East. I think that the question of the Palestinian mandates and those votes that come up every autumn at the UN are really significant. I mean, the Middle East and the Palestinian question is a real fault line that runs through the whole UN system. And you stand on either one or the other side of that divide. Under the leadership of Paul Martin as prime minister, we began to change our votes on those Palestinian mandates. In the first, in the first year... I wasn't happy with it, but I took instructions and I explained why we were doing it, and I more or less, we more or less got away with it. But the second year we didn't. Second year was a material move away from Canada's traditional position, and that became much worse under Stephen Harper to the point where he was openly allying himself not with Israel, but with the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. But when Israel, the only country in the world whose very existence is under attack, is consistently and conspicuously singled out for condemnation, I believe we are morally obligated to take a stand. And he was lavishly praising Netanyahu and his policies, and his votes at the United Nations were in solid alignment with the United States and the Marshall Islands. I mean, it was terribly embarrassing. That's Alan Rock again. Prime Minister Paul Martin didn't want Rock, someone with leadership ambitions in cabinet, so he gave him the plum diplomatic post in New York City. After the 2006 election, Prime Minister Harper asked Rock to stay a few more months, even though their personal agendas didn't really align. And I think just generally, uh, the Trudeau government is seen as very different compared to the Harper government when it comes to the Middle East. Canada did replace money taken from the Americans from the uh, Palestinian Refugees Agency, and that was deeply appreciated. Um, and, uh, and Canada's been an outspoken, ad, outspoken advocate for that agency to remain in existence. So that, that's been noted as well. But we haven't gone back to where we were. I wish we had, but uh, we haven't. And uh, that's a matter of, it's going to cost us, no question. Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. We will double our growth and have the strongest economy anywhere in the world. At the same time, we will get along with all other nations willing to get along with us. Trump has become such an ogre in the eyes of the, of the Arabs that if we're not Trump, uh, you know, that, that puts us at least in one better category. There's a general sense among the former players and the outside experts I spoke with that Canada's relationship with the United States, specifically Trudeau's frosty relationship with President Donald Trump, could affect Canada's bid for a UN Security Council seat. Yves Fortier thinks it's a net positive. Uh, All too often, uh, we have been seen as too close to to the U.S., uh, not quote-unquote, independent enough. If the present situation lasts, where Mr. Trump is seen as a 
as uh, uh, not being as friendly to Canada as his uh, predecessors have been. I, I do believe that in certain regions of the world, this, uh, this, will, this will help Canada in uh, its election to the Security Council. Richard Gowan, the scholar at the UN University who we heard from at the top of the podcast, isn't so sure. The fact that um, Prime Minister Trudeau and President Trump have such a tense relationship at the moment um, will be a source of concern uh, for diplomats in New York. Because if the U.S. really gets behind uh, Norway and Ireland to spite Canada, then uh, the Americans could well create a lot of problems because they do have still a huge amount of influence over a lot of countries here. Both Axworthy and Rock think Trump's election forced Canada to pull its attention away from the UN Security Council bid towards NAFTA and away from championing policies loudly out of fear that they might rub the U.S. the wrong way. Everything this government has done has been impacted by the arrival of Donald Trump and everything he's done and said. I think it's displaced the priorities the government intended to have. We're in a reactive mode a lot of the time, and I think sometimes reluctant to be as aggressive as we would be otherwise on some of these issues, worrying about a backlash from an unstable source. NAFTA takes up a lot of oxygen, and we also know that Trump has uh, no compunction in using whatever tools he has to, to exploit or intimidate. It makes it tough for us. A good part of our foreign policy strength has been diverted from general world order issues and, and other bilateral relationships and multilateral relationships to this one relationship with the United States. This is a new voice. Adam Chapnick. He teaches defense studies at the Kane Forces College and has written extensively on the UN Security Council bids. It's almost as if Ms. Freeland is minister responsible for the United States and then when she isn't busy, which is rare, minister for foreign affairs more generally. Canadians witnessed this just this weekend. Christia Freeland, the foreign affairs minister, was scheduled to address the General Assembly on Saturday. But last-minute negotiations on NAFTA scuttled those plans. Aside from human resources issues, though, Canada faces two other big challenges in campaigning for this 2021 seat. I think that the biggest problem the government faces is time. We are extremely late. Uh, Our competitors have been campaigning for significantly longer than we have, which means that we are campaigning from behind, which we've never done before. The next obstacle is our competitors are formidable. And to clinch one of these two seats, Canada needs to lock down at least two-thirds of the 193 votes at the General Assembly. We'd better have a very good second ballot strategy, because on the first ballot, I think we're uh, we're in difficult shape. The big problem in dealing with Ireland is that... uh, the Irish have two, uh, two main advantages. One, they are a member of the European Union, and they're likely to get a lot of support from other EU countries. And two, uh, Dublin has always maintained very good relations with developing countries and to some extent presents it, um, Ireland as a, you know, another former colony that has a special link to um, former colonies in Africa, um, Asia and elsewhere. The Norwegians um, have a very strong team in New York and are leading uh, voices on development. They're leading voices on peacekeeping, and uh, they have a lot of respect in New York, too. Now, Canada is a, is a strong player in its own right, um, and you know I, I think that 
especially in the the Trudeau period, has um, made a, a very positive impression in, in New York, especially on issues like uh, like gender. Canada is facing off against two like-minded countries, the Irish, who are strong on peacekeeping and can court smaller countries with the I'm one of you attitude, and the Norwegians, who are basically the poster boy for the UN. They give nearly 1% of their GDP in aid, far above the recommended 0.7%. Canada is at about 0.24%. When we say we're back, they say they've never left. So where does this leave everything? Here's Yves Fortier. I remember when my, my friend Marc-André Blanchard, who's our man in, uh, in New York today and has been there now for, must be close to three years, you know, he called before he accepted the appointment and um, asked for advice. And I said, Marc-André, uh, in French, uh, I said, it's, uh, uh, you know, we should be on the Security Council, but it's, uh, it's going to be a very steep hill to climb. But I said, if anybody can do it, you can. We'll speak with Marc-André Blanchard in a moment. and I'm the uh, ambassador and permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations, and I've had the privilege of having this role for the last 30 months. Mr. Blanchard, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I wanted to start off by asking you, um, you know, two years ago when the Prime Minister gave his first speech at the UN General Assembly, he said, Canada is here to help. Listen, Canada is a modest country. We know we can't solve these problems alone. We know we need to do this all together. We know it will be hard work. But we're Canadian, and we're here to help. What is the cornerstone of our campaign for this UN Security Council seat? What are we telling people that we want to do if we get access uh, to this table? Well, the, the campaign is about, uh, you know, I always say that people ask me, what is the campaign of Canada? It's Canada being Canada on the world stage. And Canada ma can make things happen like very few countries in the world. I once met the leader of the UN in Africa, and he said, we're so glad to see Can that Canada is back. And I said, why? He said, well, because of your friends, before, because of your history, because of you, you, who, your leadership, and because of Mr. Trudeau, and because you speak French and English and the diversity and everything and your values, you can actually really achieve things that very few countries can. And so this is what we've been doing in the last two, uh, two years and a half uh, in, in, on the international stage. We've been focusing on providing solutions or parts of solutions to the real issues that the world are fa is facing at the moment. And at the UN, and this week, it translated into a focus on the education of women and girls in uh, conflict and fragile states. It focused on the situation of the Rohingyas in Myanmar, the, fo the focus of the situation, the humanitarian situation and the political situation in Venezuela, and also on a very, very important issue, which is climate change, the defining issue of our time, really, at the moment. 
and we we really are working with the entire world to make sure that you know one of the best way to fight climate change is to build new infrastructure and very rapidly because infrastructure there's a correlation of 60% if we build the right infrastructure we can actually reduce some of the emissions by 60%. So it's very important throughout the world to make sure that we have the right infrastructure that is clean tech and renewable energies and the like. And, and so the problem is the financing of it. And Canada is playing a leadership role in that. I understand why Canada uh, would want to engage with the United Nations, or at least this government would want to engage with the United Nations, why this government would want a seat at the UN Security Council. But as I'm sure you know, a lot of um, critics have suggested, a number of critics, uh, that we started this campaign late, that we picked a difficult year. When I hear you speak, a lot of what you're saying, I feel I could hear from the representatives from Ireland or Norway. Did we pick the wrong year to compete for this seat? All years that uh, are uh, where there are elections, you have to understand the elections. Uh, we belong to the Western European and others group at the UN, which are the Western European states plus Australia, New Zealand, and Israel and Turkey. What, this is a very highly competitive uh, group, and uh, everybody aspires in that group, it seems, to be a member of the Security Council. Uh, those are always the most closely watched election, the most competitive ones. And uh, yes, it is competitive, but uh, Canada is certainly a very strong candidate. And being seen, it's not, you know, is it a sure bet that Canada will get elected? No. But are we a strong contender? And people believe that we're, you know, a very serious candidate and that uh, we can be elected? Yes. I think we're different from our competitors. We're way more engaged on this issue of financing. We lead the world on this issue of financing. And it was obvious when Prime Minister Trudeau this week sat with the African leaders, for example. He, led, he, he, he sat down with African leaders uh, to talk about youth and jobs and the economics of it. And um, we are perceived as a leader on that front. We're perceived as a leader on, on women and girls. You know, we did something on women and girls that no other, very few other countries would have been able to do, which is use the G7 to leverage this, this forum, actually raise amongst the partner of the G7 $3.8 billion when everybody thought that it was an impossible task to do. So this is the kind of leadership that Canada does. This is the kind of, lead, you know, this is the different um, um, dimension that Canada can bring. And this is why it's so important that Canada be uh, around this uh, seat at the Security Council. When I hear you talk about um, girls' education and financing, I can't help but think about the math that goes into getting the votes um, for uh, a win like this. Several people have suggested to me that uh, you need to be really concerned about your second ballot strategy. Um, what does that mean to you, and how would you explain that to the public? Um, and how does one go about having a second ballot strategy? I, at the moment, it's too early uh, to have a second ballot strategy. It's not that I don't want to answer your question. We're two two years away from the um, from the election. We we will uh, develop a second ballot strategy as we will get closer to the vote. At this time, what is important? It's about our foreign policy, but not only about our foreign policy. It's a lot about who we are, who our leaders are, and what we believe in. We're in this race to win. Don't get me wrong. But win or lose, 
this exercise will have been benefited, benefiting for Canadians and, and our Canadian foreign policy because this is a time when we look at all of our 192 bilateral relations and we look whether we can do something more together, how we could partner differently, how we can make it more sustainable. If we lose, though, isn't that a giant embarrassment? The you know, are pretty high. You've got a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of weight on your shoulders there. But but the, it it is important that we uh, compete uh, as seriously as we can with a lot of energy, with a lot of engagement, and um, I I hope that Canadians will join in the engagement because it is important also that we feel that the country is behind Canada, and um, you know. It is uh, we're there and there to win, and uh, but we'll see. Uh, this is it is way too early to think about any other scenario at this time. Let me just end by asking you for a sneak peek about Monday's speech. Uh, could be yourself, I understand. It could be Minister Freeland. What should we expect to hear from Canada on Monday? Well, I think it's it's actually we're going to be talking a lot about multilateralism and how Canada. Uh, is uh, believes in multilateralism because we think it's only through multilateralism that we can tackle the most pressing issues of our world, which are climate change and, and migration issues and uh, violent extremism and, uh, and 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 economic insecurity and how we can you know the importance of no there's no country in the world can that can do it alone there's no country acting with two or three other countries that can do it we all need to do this together and isn't that's what we're going to be talking about isn't that ex exact opposite of what mr trump said last week i don't think he said that i, I i'll let mr Patriotism, trump talk for himself nationalism rejecting globalism america is governed by americans we reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Around the world, responsible nations must defend against threats to sovereignty, not just from global governments, but also from other new forms of coercion and domination. You're, you're giving an anti-American speech, no? No, not at all. I, it's a pro-UN speech, and uh, the, the United States uh, are still a very engaged member of the United Nations. They still, and they've agreed to do that, to contribute 25% of the budget of the United Nations. So, and uh, in his speech, Mr. Trump uh, did not, uh, you know, he, he did not, well, he was not negative at all on the role of the United Nations. We withdrew from the Human Rights Council and we will not return until real reform is enacted. For similar reasons, the United States will provide no support and recognition to the International Criminal Court. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. He didn't comment on the ineffectiveness of the UN or the fact that it could cost too much, or the fact that they, they would walk away from UN um, agencies or, um, or the like. He, and this is important to remember. The, the U.S. is really still, under President Trump, deeply engaged in the UN. It has, may have changed its tone in some of the parts of the UN, 
but it's still a very key player in this organization still. And Mr. Trump, President Trump, did not put that into doubt. Ambassador Blanchard, thank you so much for this. It was a, a treat to speak with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's our deep dive into Canada's campaign for a UN Security Council seat. If you enjoyed this episode on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review there. Have an idea for a future show? Send it to us. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter. Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. Follow Up was produced this week by HuffPost politics reporter Zian Lum, technical producer Laura Howells, and myself, Althea Raj. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. Thanks for listening. See you after Thanksgiving. 